promise me no matter what happens, you get it out into the world. Hey, this is The Big Story. I'm Alex Morrissey. Thanks for joining me. Oh, this is a a rough week uh, that I thought was just going to get to talk about it being a rough week. And then right before I started recording this, I found out that Jason Pearson passed away. It's heartbreaking. Jason was an amazing artist. He will be best, Jason. Last week, I tested positive for COVID after venturing out into a couple of social events. And fortunately, it wasn't that bad. It was about a day of really feeling sick. Then it leveled off and I was mostly functional. But being cooped up for a week, being masked up all the time, really takes a lot out of you. I'm not a huge social butterfly, but when you can't go out, it is not fun. But it gives you time to think and time to work on the things that you don't get the time to focus on when you're running around. And that's been a somewhat of a blessing. I've uh, been doing a lot of structural back-end work for my book, which just seems to carry on and carry on. But there will be an end to this, I promise. Yeah, oh, and another thing, I unexpectedly accepted the writing duties for a friend of mine's comic book, one that I have done a bunch of scripting work for. We had a talk and thought it'd be best if I man the keyboard for the remainder of the series. So I'm pretty excited about that. We'll have more to talk about that as things move along. So today's guest goes back all the way to his first appearance on episode 80. Jason is a uh, writer who makes stories that he wants to share, not chasing the make it to the majors path that many follow. He makes what he wants and puts it out there. And I think that's super admirable. He's had some pretty significant events in his life of recent and He's come on to talk about the special edition of his book, Parallel, and the upcoming graphic novel, Jane American. So this is me and Jason Douglas. I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for the, the Star Trek reality where literally they, they wave that wand over you and just stuff disappears from your body. We're not quite there yet. They still no. cut me open and I've got the scars to prove it, but like right. someday, maybe someday. Well, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a classic with a Star Trek four line with bones where he, you know, he, you know, he's like, he's it's like, not, he's he's just, yeah, yeah, exactly. that, that and Scotty going, Hello, computer. Yeah. (laughs) Hello, computer. God, I love, I don't get sick of that. (laughs) Love 
the first Star Trek movie motion picture because it it put my favorite television show yeah. on the big screen. So yeah. it was like this moment of like, oh my gosh, like this is like even bigger and better and better. But then like I, my mom took me to go see uh, the second one, which of course I think is the emotional core of the whole, yes. the whole thing. And my mom was definitely a closet Star Trek and sci-fi fan. And then, yeah, but before force is a close number two as far as like quality goes like it was such a good movie for sure for sure i mean like like two two is the best but like four like with this you know the, the age that i am four is that like that perfect wheelhouse the age that i was how old were you when that one came out you so that's 87 right yeah so that's kind of, uh, uh, is it 87 or i think so that puts me at 10. So it's like, okay. Yeah. Perfect. Like, yeah. of course you're going to the theater to see it and you remember it and whatever. I mean, two is my favorite by mm-hmm. far, but like four is like, four is the funniest, you yeah. know? And, yeah. and it's like for, for as ridiculous as it is, I mean, come on. Right. You know, I mean, it made me a fan of humpback whales, dude. Like, let's go. <laughs> like from from 1987 on, I'm like humpback whales are my favorite whales. It's like it's not even a debate. The debate right. was over because of Star Trek Four. Right. I'll die in this hill. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it, it's interesting, and like they doubled down. It could have been terrible because they did the like real here now time of the movie, which, mm-hmm. you know, really could have backfired on them. Right. And, but they doubled down on that whole sort of like, Hey, we're going to earth, you know, when they did the, you know, the, the Joan Collins episode, um, you know, when they went back in time, right. like that's one of the greatest episodes because like they lose, like they lost somebody, like there's heartbreak there, yeah. is, you know, like they might've lost bones. Like it was an amazing episode. And I think they did the same kind of approach with this where it was like, okay, we'll do that. We'll go there, but we're not going to ruin it. Right. I mean, I I think Star Trek historically has done time travel fairly well without trying to, I mean, without trying to overcomplicate it. I mean, time travel in, in film and television, even the fast ones, it gets like the more you try to explain it or make it make sense, the more muddled it becomes. It's so, I mean, it's why it's probably never possible to do it because right. it's so hard to even just figure it out on a, a narrative issue. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't have a very clear and concise. I mean, I, the, the movie, Bill Nye's in it, who plays the father and the son is the guy who plays general so-and-so in the in the last new star wars movies the red-headed guy uh oh 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 uh uh gleason it's like it's uh, brendan gleason yeah it's brendan gleason's kid yeah his kid it's this movie about love and time travel but you can only time travel within your lifetime so you can't go back before you were born and you can't sure. go in the future. And it's, this, it's such a, I'll, I'll send you the link or I'll remember yeah, cool. in the middle, middle of our talk and go, bleh, just blurt it out. <laughs> it's a fantastic movie on the time travel aspect because it's not. Oh, and another one, all the, the best time travel movies are about love. Apparently the yeah. other one is the Christopher Reeve movie. Dude. So, okay. So I'm, uh, you know, Michigan native. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
like my favorite place on earth is Mackinac Island where they mm-hmm. filmed about half of that movie. And there's uh the gazebo is still there that they filmed oh, that scene in. And there's uh like, there's this plaque down on the, on the street going around the, the eight mile Island where like they filmed this scene that's overlooking, you know, Lake Michigan and stuff like that. And I always stop and like take a picture and, and stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Somewhere in time. Great stuff. It might be one. It's, I mean, it's up there in the top five of, of time travel movies. Yeah. It's so good because it's it does it in such a different approach. Did you like Looper? Yeah, Doug Looper a lot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I thought Ryan Johnson did a pretty good job. I'm I'm a, I'm pro Ryan Johnson. Oh, I, me too. I I. I, I I think he takes a lot of flack because he takes risks. A hundred percent for sure. And, and that was, I mean, that was, that was about half of his, half of his uh, star Wars backlash was the risks and the going off what Mm -hmm. everybody wanted it to be about half of that backlash was due to that. The other half was, you know, trolls because, you know, they like their Star Wars white and male. Um, But um, yeah, I like him. I'm going back to revisit uh, brick and brothers bloom uh, probably within the next month. Just, to check them out. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I've, I saw Brothers Bloom in the movies and I've seen it a couple of times since, and I, I don't have any negative feeling towards it. It's just not a great movie. Like, no. I think it's just, he, he's recently like, on his, on, on his glass onion, you know, like press tour, he's mm-hmm. talked about how he's still really proud of it, but he understands that, you know, because it's a sophomore effort and he's such a creative person, he fully admits that he tried to pack every good idea yeah. he had into the framework of, you know, an under two hour movie. And it's, he, he knows it's overstuffed, but I think he still has a soft spot for it. I, well, I mean, I can't see, I, I, I would think, you know, filmmakers who write and direct their own works, it's a child. Like, you, oh. you, you know, you can't go like, yeah, well, it, it's the bad one. I don't like it. <laughs> like you, right. Right. Yeah. The time it takes and the effort it takes is too much to sit, to abandon it. Speaking of movies, did you have you watched White Noise yet? I haven't. I've I've listened to um, I've listened to a couple of pods about it, but I haven't gotten there yet. Did you see it? Oh yeah, we we actually we saw it in the theater. So um, my, what do you was think? A phenomenal top three movie for me for the year. Oh, easily. cool. Um, and it's it's really interesting because my wife who is terrified of anything scary, like yeah. television or movies, says, hey, we're going to see a movie tonight. And I'm like, what? She's like, it's white noise. I'm like, okay. So I look it up and it says horror on the, you know, on the, the you know, what type of movie. Yeah. I'm like, is she insane? Like, you know, and um, it's not a horror movie. It, no, it, no. I'm really shocked that it was categorized that way. Because it's a, it's, it's a, it's a spin on the disaster movie concept. Well, yeah. And, where do you classify a disaster movie? It falls into the horror category, I think, in the minds of like, you know, a bot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I that can't one's- wait until I can't wait until Blockbuster comes back <laughs> and I walk in and see Twister under a horror movie. It'll be great. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm sure if you looked up Twister, it might somewhere it will say. say yeah, somebody's classifying Twister as a horror movie. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, the other movie that I've, I've been preaching about is uh, The Fablemans. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. There is something. Look, uh, uh, modern movie going is collapsing. The box office is collapsing in and of itself. I get it. But like the fact that West Side Story and Fablemans 
are going to be like two of Steven Spielberg's lowest grossing movies of all time. Absolutely melts my brain. Fablemans right. was so delightful. I loved every minute of it. It's, it's, it's unbelievably good. And it, it, you know, the two best scenes in the film are people who only are in those scenes for the film. Judd Hirsch's. <laughs> So good. So good. Just tears it up. And then, of course, the final scene, you know, in the studio. Yeah. Is unbelievable. And that that last shot, not a word, just a camera motion. And it it's perfect. I uh, my wife gave me such a sharp elbow in the ribs because as soon as that camera movement happens, I was just I was cackling uproariously. I was like, I like with delight and just oh, so yeah, thank it, you. It, I mean, he was like Michael Jordan and just threw yeah, the ball. I know it. I know it. Wish. You're like okay, yeah, perfection, yeah. I, I, and I, it's it, what is odd to me is the Steven Spielberg's longevity and omnipresent quality might diminish people's sort of oh I got to go check this out. Well, yeah, there's there's that, and there's like this this thing that kind of melted my brain a little bit. I was having this discussion with my buddy um, about a month ago, where where you talk about the greatest directors of all time. Right. And and you've got your standard list. Right. And you've got you've got your classic names on there and you're going to put your Kubrick in there and you're going to maybe put your Coppola in there. You're going to put your John Ford in there and so on and so forth. Right. And 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 yet when you look at Spielberg's resume, I think it's quite literally unparalleled Mm -hmm. because he's got his seven or eight that are seven or eight of the greatest movies of all time. Right. If not the greatest, the most important movies of all time. Sure. And that is as many or more than anybody else that you could put on a list. And then you go to a second tier and there are 10 to 15 movies that are better than almost 99% of other directors in the history of cinema's best. And he's got 10 or 15 more on the second tier. And there's a third tier that if you had those 10 movies, you would be considered a fantastically successful director. And that's the dude's third tier. And then he's got his clunkers as well. Um, And it's like, I just don't think that there is a career that is like his. And thus, it's almost a category unto himself. No, he's the Kelly Slater of film directing. Right, 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 right. Nicely said. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is it, it's it's it is unbelievable. And the the one thing that I always I just keep falling back on is that his competency with genre is untouched. He can do nearly any type of genre. Yeah, doesn't matter. I mean, the only thing he hasn't done is a gangster movie, right? But he could. I mean, he can do anything like with a plum for sure. For sure. Yes. Oversaturation of brilliance still apparently is oversaturation. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was having this, I was talking to someone not too long ago about Tom Cruise and, you know, everyone, I think everyone has the same sort of like come to Jesus moment with Tom Cruise where you, all you do is you spend the energy in your life going like, ugh, Tom Cruise. And that, but yet you see every Tom Cruise movie and you enjoy every Tom Cruise movie. Yeah. And I remember like in the 90s, late 90s, I think I finally, I was like, what am I doing? 
I like all the damn movies he makes. Why am I saying anything negative? I'm like, carry on, Mr. Cruz. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I was, I listening, I was listening to a pod the other day and, and it was, it was, it was very seriously speculated that like his plan is either to, uh, on filming, um, uh, uh, what, what's, uh, what's the Mission Impossible? Mission Impossible. Phantom Money Making. Sure. Phantom Money Making Part Two, right? Is, is that the serious plan is to either die doing one of the stunts or at least fake his death and then go and live on an island and do all the normal human things that he no longer, he doesn't actually do in his life anymore. And, uh, just, uh, you know, like, oh, yeah, oh he, he jumped out of that plane again and sorry, shoot didn't open. Bye bye, Tom Cruise. He is one of those people who, I kind of feel has not been living in the rest of the world since like the late eighties. Like he's just sort of like in super stardom land where I, and it's not that it's his fault. He just can't be there anymore. Like it's just the world isn't prepared for Tom Cruise to hang out. He's also, he's also like a one of one. I mean, he is now 60 years old and he's doing stunts that, that, that stunt men didn't do when they were 30 years younger than him, you know, like, like the perspective thing is he's, he's doing like halo jumps out of, for like a ghost protocol or whatever that mission Mm -hmm. impossible movie was at the same age that Paul Newman was when he played his mentor in color of money. Right. And it's like, you know, I mean, you saw Paul Newman's age as fast Eddie Felsen like, with his glasses and stuff yeah, and, like, like, that, around on the screen. Literally at the same age, just jumping out of planes at 40,000 feet. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, it's, it, it, he is really just unique. I, uh, a real close friend of mine is a film uh, director, and he was a commercial editor at one point, and he was editing this, I think maybe an American Express ad or whatever it was, but it was Tom Cruise was the yeah, the the actor of it. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, Cruz had to in this shot had to take a car, do with like a three sixty spin, and get out of the car like on point in the camera. And he ha- he's like, I had twelve takes of Cruz doing it, and the car stopping the exact same point every single time, and his stepping out of the car on point on the mark, saying his lines just a slight variation. So the the director had a choice. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it's like, if you didn't, like, if you didn't believe your friend, it's mm-hmm. literally, it's, it's, it's countless stories. Exactly like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, it takes, it takes a thousand, it takes a thousand jumps out of a plane to get perfect. Tom Cruise does it in a hundred. Right. Um, it takes this many months to perfect this kind of trick shot in pool. Tom Cruise does it in three days. Yeah. And it, 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 it's written as if, a Hollywood publicist is creating a legend and yet all everybody insists that it's true. And I, I don't know how you don't believe it. I think he's just, I, he's probably an alien and, <laughs> and, and, and at some point either, either the dying on set will happen and he will just like the, the a ship will come down and beam him up or, or something like that. Yeah. It, the beam of light will land, you know, exactly. like the Hollywood beam of light will hit him and he'll just, boop, that's it. Right. right. That's, that's the end of the movie. So how much does film play into your, your creativity? I mean, it is, it is, it's one of the things that I personally live and breathe when I allow myself to have a a moment of time that is not uh, teaching family and, uh, and stuff like that. Um, 
how much does it come into play? I mean, in a very general sense, um, because my brain still to some extent, and definitely when I was younger, is just a swirling mass of movie quotes and movie scenes that like I like to recite to, you know, other people's annoyance that like, you know, twenty, you know, twenty seven year olds think is adorable and everybody's annoyed by, but you do it in your mid forties and people are like, there's yeah, I'm not even listening to you anymore. Um but like other than that, I, I think I really, really believe that like comics are this this very beautiful, malleable medium that's halfway between prose and film. And it does a lot of things that prose can do. It does a lot of the things that film can do, but a bunch of stuff that neither of them can do because it's kind of like a, a amalgamation of the two. And so, you know, you get to like when you're when you're writing a comic page, you get to see it cinematically. Right. right. Um, and you but you get to change the pacing in a way that um, you don't really see in film other than whole scale. Like like you can change the size of the panel to change the pacing in the middle of a scene. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, you can do that as a filmmaker and you can do like a, you can do the Eggers thing and and film the lighthouse in black and white and in three by four and it completely changes but that's the whole film i can do that like on one page i can do that i can i can put pause on a film and do a reveal on a on a facing page so the audience can't see it in a way that film can't and yet still have those film like visuals in a way that prose can't so i'm, I'm kind of thinking in both genres you know a good novel and a good film being my two of my favorite things in the world and i get to work in a medium that kind of uses the best of both yeah yeah film's always been this kind of interesting when i think of how influential it it was on my thinking when it came to storytelling and i think that's really where i cut my teeth yeah kid was paint was watching film and how how these you know the the films of the 70s really kind of impacted my little brain and then and i say and I, when i say reading comics i really mean looking at the pictures yeah you know i spent probably the first you know eight years of comic book enjoyment just looking at the pictures because i didn't really i couldn't settle down enough to read the words and then i got to go back and kind of read them again and go oh that's what that meant okay. I see, this this is a thought that that literally just popped into my head right now and that's what this is one of the things i love talking one of the reasons why i love talking to you is um you know i've always considered myself like like as a as a as a comic as a 50 percent down the middle half comic collector and half comic reader right mm-hmm. the which is the the, the popcorn film the popcorn movie right and the film connoisseur right yeah and and you know i like like you know uh, me as a modern collector me as a collector as a 12 year old it was always half you know uh, uh number one issues gold foil embossed stamp die cut covers sure. and the other half this is the best writer this is the best story get it all and I remember as a kid, you know, I came of age watching movies and watching movies on TV in the 80s. And so, you know, if you, if I was talking to a certain group of people, it was Top Gun and Predator, mm-hmm. right? And yet, if I was going to watch something on my own, it was all the President's Men. 
Right. It was the conversation. You know what I mean? And it was like, it's like that exact same. It was like, I I kind of realized like as, as a film connoisseur, it's, it's, it's again, it's like 50, 50 down the middle. Give me on one hand, I really want to watch Crocodile Dundee and Young Guns. On the other hand, you know, like I, like I need to, I need to watch, you know, it happened one night uh, at least once a year. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, bring me back to the Godfather and Godfather part two as many times as you can. And, you know, I think one of those things is that it's easier to find people who dig Top Gun than it is who dig the conversation. For sure. So you, you can get a group of, you know, like-minded friends to have a good time and, you know, drink soda pop and have a good time and, and laugh and say stuff. The other one takes like, it's, it takes intention and focus, you know, to really like enjoy what you're, you're being witness to. Right. You're, you're probably not having a paths of glory party with your friends. And, but, but you could, you could say like, we're doing, we're doing, I mean, you, you probably have an easier time getting friends together to watch Tom Cruise and cocktail to kind (laughs) of like watch it ironically than you would, um, anything from, new Hollywood era, right? Like you're, yeah. you're not right. You're not, you're not getting to watch Scarecrow with you just because Gene Hackman looks enormous and intimidating and, and insane in that movie. Yeah. I think it's when you go off to college is when you can find the people who had the same appreciation for nuance, whether it's a literal, you know, interest or it's a visual interest or whatever the interest may be, you can find people who are like, Oh yeah, I love that movie too. And they love it for maybe a different reason. And then right. you get to learn that reason. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess going from the movies, you know, to books, what was your sort of pathway with books? I mean, because. So, so (laughs) God, this is a lot of fun. Um, There is uh, my origin story for reading is spiteful, vindictive, and I think hilarious. So my mom and her two younger sisters were all teachers before me and all in the same district. I had my mom for um, fourth grade social studies, which was a nightmare. Ooh. I had my aunt, her youngest sister for sixth grade health, which I'll let you do the math on that for a minute. Yeah. It was a 10 week exercise of not making eye contact as we talked about certain reproductive things. And, um, but like I grew up around it and they were always very competitive with each other. And, um, when I was little, uh, I, I spent a lot of time with, with my mom's younger sister, two years younger, and she made it her mission. I don't, I mean, certainly for my betterment, but I think really to stick it to my mom, to teach me to read before my mom could. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I was reading at three and, um, I started reading my gateway was, Civil War books, like starting with Golden Age, but then getting like I was like um I was like a six year old kid, and I could like quote for you troop movements by um by regiment on like the second day of Gettysburg, like when I was like eight, uh and um and then, so so a lot of nonfiction to start, and uh, I think you know like novels very early on it was uh, Mrs Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, it was um where the Red Fern grows, it was Nar. It was Tolkien, but at 12, at 12, I snuck into my parents' room and I grabbed two Stephen King novels off my dad's bedtime 
bedside stand and I read Eyes of the Dragon first, which okay. is, you know, pretty tame as far as, um, you know, it's a great fantasy novel. And it was like, it was like, it really struck me because it was very, it had Narnia and Tolkien obviously influences. And I was like, oh, I can handle this. And then I read it at 12 years old right after that. And I did sleep for six months <laughs> and, uh, and I was hooked. And that becomes, I mean, Stephen King is a ridiculously talented writer. Sometimes yeah. it's stick the landing, but like, also gets short shrift when it comes to actually being somebody who knows what he's doing and can weave a good yarn. Yeah. And I became, but I'd still consider it like my popcorn side, you know, if, if I've got that dichotomy of the 50, 50, right. Sure. So I'm, you know, at the same time that I'm reading every single Stephen King novel, uh, I am, I'm doing my pretentious teenage years of reading Tolstoy at the same time and, uh, and, and expanding my horizons in that direction. So proclivity into any arena usually is an externally reinforced thing. It doesn't just typically it's not something you do unless it, you, you are wired in a certain way. But yeah. so like but reading is not like uh, drawing or playing music where someone's like, boy, Jason, you're really good at playing the piano. And you're like, I'm good at playing the piano. I'm going to get better. The question how do you think reading is reinforced to the point of a voracious level? Well, I, it's, I don't, I don't know if this is even pushing back or not because, you know, I, I'm coming at from, at least today, I'm coming at it from an educational perspective as well. Mm -hmm. And, and I do truly believe that to some extent reading, writing and spelling, right. If you want to take three of the ELA kind of stalwarts, no matter what instruction you get, no matter what, uh, you know, modern um, education is saying, this is the method to teach this and to get better at this. It really is a repetition and practice thing, mm -hmm. right? Like, like you are, you are a good speller, you are a bad speller. And really the improvement is not this program or that program. It's just reading more and spelling more. Right. And like kids become like, I, I, I've got my methods to teach a fourth grader to become a better reader, but the way you become a better reader as you read more. Now that doesn't exactly answer your question because is it something innate? Is it something internal? Uh, is it reinforcement from the outside? You know what? If I'm going to be completely honest with you, I've seen all of it. Yeah. Like, like my family right now, it's a family of five and I am the only voracious reader in the group. Now, how much of that is me not pushing hard enough when my kids were younger, I don't know. Um, what about that? You know, but, but I've also seen, I've also seen that, that sometimes it's just the spark of the thing that they find. And that feels almost like a cliche to me, but like, I can't tell you how many times at parent teacher conferences with fourth graders for my first 13 years of my career and with eighth graders for my last 10, that it's that, that my kid's not a reader until, I put it, I put bone, right? The scholastic printings of, of Jeff Smith's bone in the kid's hand and suddenly they can't stop reading and it keeps right. comics or we hit fourth marking period, which no matter how tired every single year I get as a teacher, we hit fourth marking period and read the outsiders, you know, mm -hmm. a, a, a book for teenagers about teenagers by a teenager hitting right. that first draft when she was 15. Wow. Like we hit that and suddenly that kid who is literally, it's, it, it sounds like a cliche, that kid who has literally never finished a book in their life 
is now like I I will I will be a lifelong reader because sure. the outsiders changed it. So sometimes it's the outside influence. Sometimes I think it's it's in them, and they've just got to find the thing that turns it on. Sometimes it's a vindictive aunt who teaches you to read when you're three uh, to, to shove in her mom's face, and then you're just off on your journey. I don't know. Well, yeah, because I mean, it, I mean, and maybe it's because maybe that helped you feel special. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like because like, I mean, you got special attention from somebody who wasn't the people who you know, put food on your table every single day and, right. you know, and said time to go get some clothes for the new school year. Like there, this, there's this external thing where it's like, Oh, this is not the normal thing. So this is special. And, yeah. you know, aunts and uncles are special because they're kind of this unique presence that kind of come in with a little bit of a soundtrack when they walk in the room. It became like reading became a routine with me. It's something that, um, since I started doing it on my own, uh, you know, I like a good streak and I read before bed every single night and like do not miss a night under any yeah. circumstances for any reason. And even if it's like I'm exhausted and it's it's that thing where I remember <laughs> I remember in my first couple of years of teaching, I'm living I'm living the bachelor's life in, in my apartment before before I move in with, with with who will become my wife. And I'm doing that thing where, you know, I don't go to the grocery store until literally the last saltine and barbecue sauce meal has been eaten, you know? And um and and I and I was I was going to a lot of clubs on the weekend with the guys, you know, dancing the night away. And I would come home at like two, three in the morning, just exhausted. Mm-hmm. But I had to crack on the book and I was reading. Oh, God, the author escapes me. I think Jonathan Keegan, a, a, a pretty comprehensive um, World War One, fairly dry history text, but okay. good. And I did that thing where I think for a week straight, I read the same half of page. You know, the thing where you drift off and you're like, where you left and I would restart the half of the page and only make it halfway. And for a week, and it doesn't matter because I read every night and, yeah. and it's, it's a routine, but for me, it's not a chore because it is, it is one of my life's great pleasures. Yeah, no, I, 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 I if I miss reading before I go to sleep, I never sleep as well. I have a harder time falling asleep. I, d- I don't think my dream, my REM sleep is as sound. Right. Okay. Yeah. It is part of my, my wind down. There's this thing, time to go to bed. It's just these every night, the same stuff. It drives my wife nuts. Like she just, cause you know, we get in bed, I'm book is open and she wants to talk, you know? And so I will do that paragraph, reread, reread because I keep like, Oh, Oh yeah. Right. And then back and then, you know, Oh, our routine, our routine in my house has become me staying up later than I should. Uh, what's good for me to, to, to stay alert enough to not have eighth graders eat you alive the next day. I will stay up later than I should just to give her enough time to get to REM sleep. So right. when I get in bed and turn on my reading light and I'm <laughs> with the, with the novel or the graphic novel that I'm reading that night, I do not disturb her. Yeah. 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 What are you reading right now? Um, so I just finished, uh, yesterday, um, the newest Stephen King novel called fairy tale. And okay. last night I started, um, volume four of this, this strange, not strange, but like this small, uh, caliber press has put out four volumes of uh, this book called like uh, World War One Aces, and it's okay. literally 
uh, each volume hits four or five of the highest ranking aces from each country during World War One, and like okay. a story in graphic novel format. And uh, I just read uh, Bishop's story from uh, he was the highest ranking ace, like 72 victories from Australia last night. That's so cool. World War One is this sort of territory of history that I have an amazing fascination for. And I have a, I have two stories I want to write that take yeah. in, that, in that period. And it's one of the, because I think it's one of the most, it's the shallows of the ocean as far as history goes, because the ocean drops off and we have this ancient history of humanity and conflict. Yeah. And then we have the, 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 we have the beach, which is this sort of modern era that, you know, sort of really made its way from World War II forward in a very short period of time comparatively. And in that frothy, dangerous, you know, tidal shifting, you know, shallows is World War One For sure. Well, and, you know, when you're, you're saying, you know, these aces, we don't have a sort of a romantic storyline of, of uh, combat aces in World War II and anything beyond that. Mm-hmm. But there's this sort of like, these were the, these were the armored knights of, of the era. Yeah. You know, they're on horseback. They've got barding and they've got flowing, you know, stuff off in a lance and they're heading off into the, into combat against, you know, the, the other people. In this case, they've got a scarf wrapped around their neck with a leather, you know, uh, sheep and, line. And not allowed to have parachutes. Right. Only only the guys in the observation balloons were allowed to have parachutes. Like if you went down, you went down. It was like and these guys, boom, and they're and they're out there looking like they're looking for a fight. And it's a really interesting period of time. Yeah, it's uh, bringing it back to comics. Um, uh, 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 a niche controversial opinion of mine, because like uh, I'm a big fan of EC comics, you know, from the early to mid 50s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the the the. The post comics code books, when they've got to kind of cancel all their horror books or or lighten them up and go in that new their new direction books, kind of get kind of get crapped on and 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 rightfully so in some respects. And yet, I think my favorite EC book of all time is Aces High because it's literally all. World War One uh, uh, piloting stories and stuff like that, and you know, as much as I love Tales from the Crypt, and as much as I love, you know, uh, uh, the, the crime stuff and the horror stuff and the shock suspense stories, I, Aces High I think is my favorite EC book for for kind of that similar reason. It's an interesting period. Yeah, I've. I, you said Bone. I picked up Bone, and it's just sitting there waiting for me to start reading. I've did only. Read- up, did you pick up the brick? The big, the big. Fa- yes. <laughs> There <laughs> so, we go. Uh, we'll stop. Yeah. This I love you. Let me. I'll flash this on the screen for you. Sketch yeah, and signed by the man himself. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. It's a. Uh, I've only read a little bit here and there, and I'm just. I'm like, okay. I've got to sit down. And I've got to read all of Bone. Just get go right on through it and enjoy the story. It's just one of those books. And there's so many of them out there, which is great, you know, for all of us. Someone uh, tweeted earlier today and he was like, too many books. And I said, correction, (laughs) the right amount of books 
too many, too many other things and not enough time. Not enough time. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that's the, that's the issue. It's like, you know, there's, we've got just the right amount of books and keep them coming. So you've been really, really open and forthright about what's been happening to you in the last six, seven months. That, but you- yeah. And, um, I guess you want to mention in your own words what, what's what's been happening and what's happened, and then we can kind of talk about how that's a, affecting your creativity. Yeah. So so this this past summer was supposed to be like my family's bounce back summer after after the nine months before that. Um, you know, if you look at it from my kids' perspective, we lost three grandparents in nine months. My yeah. both my wife's parents, and then and then my dad suddenly, and. Um, you know, this is all through the ups and downs of that first of that first run of parallel selling out and getting the two Ringo nominations. So, like, you're going on these emotional roller coasters of like personal victories and and personal tragedies. And and we were kind of supposed to like reset and and kind of come together this past summer and go on a couple of trips and and have some fun. And and we we're going to come back in August and. And I was going to kick off my very first Kickstarter for my my next project, you know. Right. Uh, and instead, <laughs> instead, I came home and had uh, a routine colonoscopy because uh, the year I turned forty five was the year the law changed, and doctors are supposed to recommend your first one at forty five instead of fifty. And right. you know, I'm a teacher and I'm a rule follower, so I went in and um, <laughs> you know came out of anesthesia. And instead of like trying to be a charm monster and joking around with the doctor about you know poking away at my but uh, they found a cancerous tumor mm. that was uh, making a very, very um, concerted effort to kill me fairly fast because my blood work was clean as a whistle the August before. Okay. And um, so, so I went under the knife um, for, for colon cancer surgery on um, August 30th. Yeah. And uh, they, they, they cut out uh, the, a fairly large tumor, um, 24 centimeters of my sigmoid colon and uh, stapled what was left right, right down there to my butt and, you know, could put me back together and, and took out 27 lymph nodes to test and, um, uh, Got out of the hospital. I said, I said a U of, or not a U. I said a, a, um, a Providence Hospital um, unofficial floor record of getting out of the hospital in under forty eight hours. It's oh, wow. like four days to two weeks, and I was like, nope, I'm walking, I'm, I'm pooping, I'm peeing, I'm gonna, I'm gonna win, I'm gonna win recovery, yeah. and uh, got home and started my recovery there. And pathology came back very positive. My lymph nodes were clean, the margins were clean. The scary thing was. The scary thing was the tumor had been so aggressive that it had grown to the size it had grown in probably less than a year. Um, and it had already eaten through three of the four layers of my colon was about to bust out in the open. And that's when you're, you're yeah. automatic stage four because it's it's in your blood system. It's in your lymph nodes. It's everywhere. And so, um, you know, it was one of those things where I heard doctors say, we think of, you know, doctors don't talk about cancer in days and weeks. We talk about it in months and years. And at the same time, because of where the tumor was and the amount of time it took to get where it was, there's a really good chance that had I gone with one surgeon over another and had waited like three weeks longer, right? Um, that it, it would be a very different situation than getting it out of me. 
And then you begin what they call standard of care, which is blood work every three months, a CT scan every eight months, and a new colonoscopy every year. And the results as I had them are, 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 are positive. They're about as good as they can be, but you're at this 90-10% um, this waiting game for five years where it's 90% curative when you get those kind of results and 10% it comes back, it uh, metastasizes somewhere else and probably knocks you out because it's going to grab on and regrow somewhere where you can't operate. Right. So it, it's a, you know 90% is great, um, but my oncologist said because of your results and because of your age, your relatively you know, young age for this kind of thing, I feel ancient, but relatively young age for colon cancer, um, we'd like to enter you in this clinical trial where what we're doing is we're going to test your blood with a, a, a sound science blood test that tests for CT DNA, which is called circular uh, circulating tumor DNA, okay. which is basically cancer at a microscopic DNA level mm-hmm. before it actually becomes cancer and um, metastasizes the cells. And they test it, and either you've got CT DNA or you don't. And if you don't, your colon cancer or whatever kind of cancer they're testing for is not coming back. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to get cancer again. You might be sure. genetically predisposed, but that cancer is not coming back in the five years that we're testing you for. If you do have CT DNA, you are 100% guaranteed for it to come back and land somewhere else. That's it. That's why it's a 90-10. Mm-hmm. But the reason why they don't test everybody for CT DNA is there is no scientifically medically proven way to kill cancer at that DNA level yet. Sure. So what the clinical trial is... You, you, you flip a coin and you're either the control group where they test your blood and then they don't tell you anything and they just let it play out or they test your blood. And if you've got CT DNA, you go through about a six month round of experimental chemo to see if there is science behind killing CT right. DNA. Okay. Obviously, if the trial plays out a certain way, it changes medical practice the world over because now you're going to test healthy 25 year olds. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're going to say, by the way, healthy 25 year old, you start chemo next month. And they're like, oh, my God, do I have cancer? And they're like, no, you don't. But you will within five years and we're going to fix you before it can happen. Who's running this? um, It's it's a national thing. And uh, mine was through Providence Hospital. I can't can't quote the you know, who's running the study off the top of my head, but it's a national study. Um, and then I got lucky in two respects. Um, one, I won the coin flip and I was in the experimental group and not the control group. Okay. So my blood got tested and I got my results back. And then, you know, not great for the study. And this shows you what a guilty conscience I have is when the doctor came back and said, by the way, you're CT DNA free, which should have been the biggest celebration of my life. I did have an immediate reaction that he thought was ridiculous. I'm like, oh, is it okay that I feel a little bad that I can't help your study the way I would have liked to help your study? <laughs> and he's like, stop thinking that way. Like you're fine. You're not getting cancer in the next five years. Right. So, but, um, so like I, I, I'm clean on that uh, respect. Now it's back to standard, um, standard care and dealing with like annoying, but much better than a ball of cancer trying to eat you from the inside out, like post-surgery complications, you mm-hmm. know, and like getting on this medication so that, uh, I can, I can, I don't have to cross my legs and do the pee pee dance for, um, every 10 minutes as I'm teaching a, a class, yeah. um, and stuff like that. Um, and there's, you know, some other stuff in my CT scan that they're going to keep an eye on, you know, a spot here, a spot there that could be something could be nothing. So my next five years as a journey is not over, but quite literally for 
or as bad as it was for that window. Mm-hmm. And as lucky as I got to catch it, because I would not have made it. I mean, forget making it to 50 when I would have had my first, like, yeah. I, I would have, like, I was symptom free. I mean, it, this was just that random test, you know, go get scanned because you never know. Um, forget making it to 50. I wouldn't have made it another year. Um, so it, it's it, as kind of harrowing as it was for a few months there, my outcome right now is quite literally as good as it can be. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, having my, my share of health issues and my, yeah. my wife having her share of health issues and, and then seeing so many people I know and don't know in the comic industry that themselves having a lot of health issues. This is called middle age. Right. Um, it's really tough because so many things are preventable. And it's not to say that like, oh, you, you didn't do this to yourself. Right. But choosing to go and get the, the colonoscopy is what saved you. Yes. And we're in this really weird period of time with this pandemic deferment. You know, a lot of people deferred a lot of stuff. Yes. And I can't encourage people enough to say like, okay, listen, I didn't go to the name, the thing, go to the thing, take care of it, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that the, you know, you know, my, my, my very small presence on, on social media, you know, Instagram is like my only social media account. I'm a public school teacher. You got to you got to be careful. It's a good way to get fired. Um, but like the, the two things that have come out of, you know, you, you know the, the two major storylines, if you follow, follow me on Instagram is obviously like the, the writing of comic book stuff. Mm-hmm. And then at least for the last few months, the, the keeping people updated and, and, and encouraging them to get scanned and tested because of my cancer journey. And I, I would think this kind of runs and forgive me for saying this word, but the, the, the parallel kind of journey that has made me most proud with the publishing of, of comics. And then, and then people following this journey is when people give me that feedback of your, your comic story has, inspired me to seek out mental health help Mm -hmm. or to talk to somebody about my depression or whatever, which is one of those underlying uh, major kind of themes in parallel. Or, you know what? I scheduled my colonoscopy or I scheduled a scan for my dad to do a stress test for next month because like it, it's just, you were, your story was the, 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 the catalyst that pushed me right over the edge and said, Hey, my life was saved by this. No, no reason, no, no logical reason for me to delay any longer. Right. I scheduled my appointment. And that, that, that's meant, that's meant more to me than, than almost anything else. Well, I mean, I mean, isn't that the, the the greatest hope for anybody who creates anything that their work affects people in a positive fashion. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's also, that's kind of that instinctive teacher thing too. Like if you're, if if you're a public school teacher for the right reasons, and I don't know anybody who got into it for fame and glory, cause it just doesn't come uh, fame and riches. It definitely doesn't come. But like, I mean, that's, that's kind of one of those instinctive things is to, you know, it, it's not necessarily for you. It's to light, it's like the fire under somebody else's butt. And, sure. um, and, and maybe it's just that one line or that one lesson or that one, whatever that sticks with them and makes a difference for them. So uh, very similar in those respects. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and rereading parallel, I, you know, I, it's quite, you know, it's, it is remarkable 
held themes in the in the comic are kind of reflective in or at least transferable to your life in the you know in, you know of this past year and the idea that like some people you know like okay do the thing that you keep saying you want to do don't don't compromise your life just because that's what you think you should be doing. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, because in, you know, in your real world scenario, you need to be around. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> so being here is important. I mean, I remember, I remember at like, like, like the, those couple of first early weeks, um, without naming names and with being as delicate as I can, I will say that like the first, the 48 hours after that colonoscopy and the results and waiting for the CT scan, um, you could probably tell, and my wife would agree with me that, that my, uh, my gastrointestinal guy had not had to give that news often, if ever before. And his bedside manner left something to be desired. And um, you probably couldn't have found a a 5% section of my brain that didn't think it was over. Right. And and part of that is my own very natural um, glass half empty. And, uh, you know, I I thrive with pessimism. I'm good. I'm good at pessimism. (laughs) But also uh, there was a lot of language that was used by a medical professional that did not encourage me that I was going to be living much longer. And in that um, in that 48 hours where I had to officially uh, postpone the Kickstarter for my next project. Mm-hmm. And say I, we're not going to be able to do that this month, if ever. Um, very similar to your point, like when I was talking to to my good friend and my editor and superstar writer in her own, Dr. Christy Blanche, and she's like, you know, what can I do for you? And I was like, look, you've got the script for the one shot for Jane American, like you've got those thirty two pages. You have my outline and all my story beats for the next three parts, it'll take it to like a 120 page graphic novel. Um, promise me no matter what happens, you get it out into the world because it means the world to me because it's, you know, it, it's loosely based and inspired by my late grandmother. It is very much dedicated to all the young women and non-binary humans that have come through my classroom the last 23 years. Cause it's about gender. It's about race. It's about identity. It's about those societal pressures to tell you who you are, whether that is who, who you are or you're not and self-actualizing that. And I was like, I, you know, I, if I'm not here, um, make sure this still gets in the world because it's really important. I, I need a generation of young people to see this. I need a generation of adults to see this because I want them to hear that, you know, uh, they are worth something. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, uh, it's an interesting thought when um, mortality is in question and what, you really start prior, you know, prioritizing, and um, and if you make things, there's this real heavy shift of this thing needs to be out there because it it, it is sort of kind of what keeps us going. Well, you mentioned you. I mean, you mentioned rereading Parallel. Yeah, and and like when I was, you know, I put. 
I spent a lot of time curating the 50 bonus pages that go into the special edition that you can that you can order right now through through previews or your LCS or through SourcePoint Press directly. And um, but recently, like post this journey, and you know, I had to flip flop the order of how this was going to come out, right? Because I had curated all those 50 pages. We were still going to do the Jane American Kickstarter first and then do the parallel special edition next. And they were kind of leapfrogging each other. Right. But going back and, and looking at the book and looking at the bonus story that I wrote that kind of fleshes out some of the, the story and, and looking especially at the dark second half of that book, um, it, it's funny that I'm personally, I mean, it came out of my brain, right? It, it's literally my words and I am seeing it through new eyes, seeing things that are there as, as a clear as day message connected to mortality in a way that I certainly didn't see it. And whether I subconsciously or consciously intended it, you know, three years ago or not is definitely resonating with me now, almost looking at it um, um, uh, from a distance about that idea of, you know, Landon's choice of of trying to grab this dream deferred or facing possibly a mortal end is like this decision that I go, oh, my God. But that's I, I get that. I, I right. see exactly what he's going through. And yet the day I wrote it, I can't tell you that that's how I was thinking about it. No, no, no. Of course. Yeah, I mean it's a, it, well. I mean that's the that's the uh, you know the lit, you know high school literature class and the teachers telling you stuff right. like this. What this means? You're like, well, how do you know that's what it means? Like, did they write that in a note saying, by the way, that's what this means? Um, right. But you know, I mean, uh, you know, speaking as a person who has sat and you know and written you know a novel, I, I also will say that like you do try to put these this theme and the subtext into your work. Now, I, who knows if that's the one that gets pulled out right right you know um so kind of going back just slightly to the to the the doctor the bedside manner the, mm-hmm. the message the the mindset like you know i had i had a similar um thing happened, you know, I'm like, you know, in a hospital bed, you know, after things and I'm, I'm lying there, my wife's with me and somebody comes in and says something and sort of delivers this really catastrophic news and expecting that we already knew this. Mm-hmm. And we, she recognized the look on our faces immediately that, and like, then all of a sudden her face changed and she quickly folded up all her notebooks and stuff and left. Like she was like, Oh, oh wait. And then quite soon the doctor and other people come in and start talking to us. And it was interesting. Um, there's, there's, there's something that I found throughout throughout this journey that that kind of caught me off guard a little bit and that is for as expert as an expert in their field can be mm-hmm. right a medical professional a mental health professional whoever it is um there's there, there was nothing that i found more helpful than talking to somebody else who had actually been through something similar right um, um, like the doctor knows how to cut the thing out of me. The doctor can answer the question about, about the, the fact that those staples that are now inside me permanently will not set off a metal detector, yeah. but he hasn't had colon cancer. Right. 
right? He 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 hasn't dealt with a catheter himself or uh, or or you know pain in the surgical area afterwards. He knows about it in theory, and he knows about it because he's operated on a hundred people who have gone through it, but he hasn't gone through it himself. And like having this conversation with. Um, quite literally a stranger that uh, a, a principal of mine, an administrator at my school put me in contact with that, you know, three years earlier had done almost the exact same thing, Right, gave me more comfort, gave me more solace, gave me more calming information than any doctor could. You did the same thing for, for a friend of mine. Like, you know, it, it, I, I, you know, the, the, the not parallel version of this is I remember getting, you know, like when the dentist is like, Hey, you're going to have to, we're going to have to take your wisdom teeth out, you know? And you're like, this is like the first event in your life where someone's going to go at you with a knife, you know, and take things out of your body. You're like, Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know? And I was terrified because most people just go like, Oh my God, it's the worst. It's terrible. Blah, blah, blah. And then someone was like, I don't know. It was really easy. It wasn't bad. And like, I didn't have any swelling. And I was like, I'm like, that's the one I'm going to listen to. I'm going to yeah, right. anyone else. And it, it worked out to be just fine. But it yeah. was like, I think it's really, you need to hear somebody who has experienced whatever the event is, because as you were saying, the doctor, what the doctor knows is what they were taught, mm-hmm. whether it was observational or in, in, in text. And then secondly, they only know what they see from the after effects. That's it. And they have no, they have no actual like different perspective. So the, the most valuable information you'll ever get in anything are the people who've already done it or who are actually doing it. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's an interest. It's an interesting thing. I <laughs> same friend uh, who I mentioned about the Tom Cruise ads. Also, I'm on the phone with him while I'm in the hospital, and he said, "He's like, hey man, you better be writing all this stuff down. This stuff sounds like really good stuff that you can use for your, you know, for your books." And I'm just like, so I sat there, like pulled my phone out and turned on the voice memo for the next however long I was there, and just kept recalling everything I could into into uh, notes because. Sure, that I'm yeah. the person who's there. I, that like my description is going to be far more. Well, uh, the the great the greatest cliche in writing is write what you know. Sure, and if you know something good, yeah, use it. <laughs> right, totally, yeah. So that was a, it. Was a, it was an interesting, it, it, you know, you know, no, none of us want to go through any of these terrible things that happen in life, but it's life, and we don't get to pick what happens. Like right. it just these things happen and uh, you, you catch these things in life and what we do choose is how we actually, you know, face them and make our way through them and beyond them. Sure. And they're with us forever. Like that's the thing. Like this is a, this is a part of your life from now in the next 50 years. You right. know, that's what it is. And right. we have to, we have to carry on. So, there's the thing about recovery. Yeah. You know, there's this time where the world kind of is like, hey, take your time to do what you need to do. Then there's like this internal thing of I, I need to go do what I want to do, like whether it's going to work or whatever the thing is that you need to kind of maybe find regain normalcy, whatever that yeah. might be. Yeah. Um, how was that for you? And what did you find yourself pulling toward? <sighs> 
because of the timing of it, it meant that I was going to miss the well, I was going to oh, miss the school year. Right. I was going to miss the beginning of the school year for the first sure. time in 23 years. And that freaked me out. <laughs> so I actually spent, I mean, uh, this is, this is a, this is a pro, um, consequence of the pandemic that actually made, made me be able to survive missing the first, you know, two and a half, three weeks of school, um, survive it mentally. Um, you know, the pandemic pushed digital learning or remote learning, uh, massively forward in public schools. Um, it was on its way, but in the same way that like, you know, uh, theater going experience was slowly dying, right. The multiplex was slowly dying. The pandemic, you know, sped it up by a decade, decade and a half. Same thing with, sure. with, with, you know, virtual learning and, and remote learning with public schools. And so, I had a platform and I had um, stuff that, that even though we're in-person learning, all our stuff still lives on that, you know, digital all-inclusive platform, right? So absences aren't even really absences anymore. And I spent like a madman um, probably the two weeks before surgery doing nothing but basically creating every single lesson through videos um, for every day that I was planning, you know, right. at this point, I don't quite know what's going to go to be gone. So when I got back to school, every single one of those 180 teenagers were new to me, but they had seen my big giant face. And it is a big face. You guys can see it on the screen right now up on a giant screen on the smart board on the Promethean board in the school every single day, teaching that lessons. And then, you know, when it was independent work time, or whatever, I turned it over to myself and just like, like literally point like now over to them. Um, but they, you know, I, I taught every single lesson that I was gone and just kind of preloaded it before. So that allowed me to kind of, you know, as much as I did rush back because, you know, if you know anything about a classroom, the, that first week is everything. Right. Um, You don't set those norms. You don't lock it down. That's going to be 40 weeks of chaos for you and for them. So uh, the sooner I could get back, the better, whether I whether I wanted that rest, whether I wanted that break, whether I needed it or not. um, Like I said, I I think I I think I went back like three weeks earlier than I was supposed to. But I I didn't. Everybody's like, you're rushing it. I wasn't. I was okay. Um, You know, I had to go to the bathroom a whole lot more often. I couldn't jump up on a table the way I might have at one point i probably at 45 i probably shouldn't have been doing that anyway but you know it was part of my part of my thing and i was just a little slower i was a little quieter whatever um but 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 i spent that time i think i did it right i think i i reset mentally i i pushed myself harder and faster but not beyond what i could do right like i was um, I was walking, I think by a week out of the hospital, I was walking like five miles a day. And by the time I got back to school, I was walking eight miles a day. Um, just because th- that was the, that's the best thing you can do for that kind of surgery. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was, I was taking time and reading and, and watching some movies to kind of, you know, refill my own, you know, cultural tank. But at the same time, 
you know, whether I was supposed to or not, you know, contractually, I'm reaching out, I'm communicating with the subs. I'm like, I might have graded a few things that I wasn't supposed to grade on the sly, you know, getting ready to get back to that normalcy. Even if that normalcy is exhausting, I knew it was something that I needed to do, if not for myself, for 180 teenagers that rely on me every single year. Yeah. Um, and then and then kind of reset the wheels on my creative life, too. Right. Like we, we rearranged and we're going to put the Jane American Kickstarter in May. And we moved up the timetable for the, the special edition so that, you know, it's in previews right now. And we finalized the cover, the new cover and um, the order of all the extra bonus material and stuff like that. So I think I personally use those three weeks really wisely. You know, some people think I didn't take enough time. Some people think I pushed myself too hard. But I'm here talking to you today having sure. a great time. So I think I did it right. Is there, I, always say, I say to everybody who I know who has surgery, having been the bystander of well over a dozen surgeries, I always say, listen, your body's going to tell you yeah. what you can and cannot do. And right. if you listen to your body, you'll be able to get not be afraid of and anticipate your body, but listen to your body and right. then kind of go you know forward based on that because like listen it's not a it, it's not a positive thing on the outside like what kind of what kind of like hard event went on with you and what was your self talk through it like cause, because we all face kind of a dark moment or two or 17 in these things like did you have any sort of self talk i'm not good at it because yeah. that that pessimism thing takes over there was some <laughs> Honestly, like that, that, that first 48 hours that I told you about mm-hmm. where things were probably at their bleakest. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, like, like, it's funny, like I, I hear myself tell this story now in perspective of three months or four months or whatever it's been. And I can hear how when I turn it into like this narrative that can fit into five or eight minutes or whatever. Um, it feels pretty, it feels like the arc feels pretty positive. Like this step, this step, good news, good news, good news. And along the way, it was kind of funny because I remember not having any celebratory moments the way that people thought I should. Um, when the CT scan came back, you know, 72 hours later and it showed, it, it showed that it, 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 besides a couple of spots here and there, that could be nothing that it hadn't spread outside the colon, mm-hmm. right? At least as yeah. far as CT, I mean, that's not lymph nodes, but it's with the CT scan can show. It was like, it, you're supposed to feel really good and uplifted because that's really good news, but you still have a tumor that could kill you in five minutes, Right. They take it out of you and that's done and you made it through that. But we don't we won't know the pathology results for two weeks. It should be a celebration. But and there were all there was always in each celebratory and good news moment across three months, there was always something that if the next step goes wrong, it's just as bad as any of the bad steps along the way. Right. And now that I'm at the end of it, like I, I, I remember we got to the end and the, the, that phone call of you are CT DNA free, which is literally the last step. Mm-hmm. You know, there, 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 there isn't really 
besides another unforeseen diagnosis sometime in the future, unrelated, there is no next step of possible bad news. And I found myself not being able to go, yes, because every other yes moment along the way came with a, but wait, hurry up and wait. Um, But to really answer your question, Like at that darkest moment, I found myself going to this place that I had always just theorized about. So with the eighth graders, um, before class, every single day, there's this prompt on the board. And it's it's more of like getting their brain working. Sometimes it's getting them writing. It's definitely getting them thinking. It's definitely like a like a, a emotional learning thing where they're talking to each other. And sometimes they're very light about like choose between this superpower and that superpower. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of, hearkening back to our early conversation, we do a lot of um, theoretical time travel questions, <laughs> which get way too muddy by the end of them about, you know, if you could go back, would you do this? What advice would you give you? You know, that kind of thing. And sometimes they're content related. Like we just did, um, we just did Japanese internment uh, with this piece of literature in class about a month ago. And, and like the question was, if you were adopted into a Japanese American family, whether by marriage or, or adoption, would you go to the camp, even though you have the option to stay home? And, and sometimes they're heavy like that. Sometimes they're light, but there was this one that I don't do anymore that I did for years. That was, it was like a pre pandemic one. It just felt too dark for me post that basically asked, like, if you could know, when you were going to die, would you want to know, or would you not want to know? Okay. It was always really interesting opinions. And, and usually, you know, I run like six classes a day and usually two or three will always ask, well, what about you? You know, they want to know my opinion on this prompt or that prompt. And I would always answer honestly on that one. I'd say, I absolutely would not want to know because I know myself well enough to know that whether it was five minutes from now or 50 years from now, I would be paralyzed right with, with depression and dread and without exaggeration again five minutes or 50 years i would go into a corner curl up in a ball and be useless for that five minutes or 50 years i i, I didn't see myself as the person who could go and, and and fulfill the bucket list and live for every moment i firmly believed that i was going to be that person if i had that knowledge that would waste every minute Right. And just like, you know, ruin everything around there. So, so when, when that reality was as close as it's ever been, like that 48 hours, yeah. like I was having serious conversations with my wife, which are, again, you know, there's no real results yet, but purely speculative where we're talking, I'm talking about like, if this is as bad as we think it is, like, I, I, I don't know that I can do this. Right. Like yeah. if it's going to get bad, we're going to have to have this conversation about like, how long do you go at what point, you know, because this is, this is a family that we're talking about that, that one of those three kind of major deaths in our lives that I told you about at the top. Um, one of those was her mom, which was a five and a half year struggle with, uh, with uh, frontal lobe dementia and like watching that person slip away. And when are you no longer a person anymore? And when is it, you know? And so like, I had those dark thoughts about like making choices about like, do I want to do this? Do I want to put other people through this? If it's going to be as bad as it is, and that's um, that's about as dark as it got, and and um, and yeah, but like knowing that about yourself is my self talk was not <laughs> was not good, and yet at the same time, the irony is, like when I tell you the rest of that story, I mean you can you can I can tell you that I can explain that mentally, and yet if you look at my actions throughout the entire span. That doesn't translate to somebody walking eight miles a day. 
Right. It doesn't translate to making a dozen phone calls and sending 20,000 text messages to rearrange creative projects that will reach a year or two into the future. Yeah. So like where I was mentally and then what I was actually putting out into the world, probably polar opposites. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, you know, we, my mother uh, suffered the same as your mother-in-law. Faden, I lost her, I guess, the first year of the pandemic. And last night, my wife, we were driving home, and she goes, she's like, do you think about dementia yourself? And I go, and I said to her, like, I don't worry about it. But I can't worry about it. I don't have the opening to spend that time and energy on that, on that subject. I can't sure. sit here and worry about something that I don't know is going to happen. And I don't want to drain away whatever I need to do the things that I want to do on this dreaded option. So, See, and, 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 and I, I very much admire that because I, I, I almost have exclusively lived my life on the opposite side of that coin where I, I spend a massive amount of my energy and time working hard to prevent a, a, a possible piece of uncomfortableness in the future, right? Like I, I've, I've caught myself not being present in the moment for huge swaths of my life, preparing for a free day tomorrow that won't come because then you're just spending that free day preparing for the next free day. And you're, you're like, I, I'm that person who I used to fake well as a kid. Uh, I, there's a certificate probably still in my mom's file somewhere that says perfect attendance K through 12 and not because I love school. I mean, I despise school, uh, uh, elementary school, middle school, especially, but I went every day and would fake well because the idea I knew I couldn't enjoy the day off knowing I was going back to then twice as much work of something I didn't want to do the next day. So like I, like I spend a lot of time preparing for tomorrow, um, today to try to make tomorrow easier. Um, you know, I, well, I mean, there's some of that, there's some of that. in what I just told you, I mean, I spent those two weeks before surgery, not preparing for surgery, sure. preparing for the time that I was gone for a job that like every, every administrator was like, don't worry about fine. it. It'll work itself out. Go, yeah. go prepare for surgery. I'm like, I don't believe you. I know yeah. what it can be. I'm going to spend every moment preparing for this thing that I won't even be there for. Right. Right. And the thing, because, because you created the worst case scenario in your head. Oh yeah. And listen, in the, in the worst case scenario, listen, that is a that it's a survival mechanism, because if you envision the worst thing and then you walk into the situation and, and you do work to try to not make it the worst thing and then you walk into the situation and it's not what your mind said it was, you're like you reinforcing all your effort. All that effort has been, you've been rewarded. All yeah. that, all oh, that yeah. stress has paid off. Yeah. And then when it doesn't work, you just get really angry because I did all this work and how dare you change my plans that I've been making. Right, for, right. Well, welcome to the last 23 years of my teaching career. You just yeah. summed it up in about 20 seconds. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Well, aren't we lovely complex individuals? Yeah. yeah. But, but we're all so predictable. To turn this to the creative side of it. I mean, because this stuff is part of our creative energy in life and we are products of our own you know, environment. So what has this done? What has this done with you? Because you sort of, you were sitting on projects. Yeah. Uh, you had one project sort of under underway mm -hmm. 
But what what did this do for you as far as production? So so beyond the logistical, it shifted timelines around, mm-hmm. right? which is obvious, right? Um, it, it it has done. It's it's something that I'm going to try to verbalize. I don't know how well I'm going to do it, but so like. When I teach when I teach the rules of grammar to eighth graders, or when I teach commas second semester, I'm very honest and open with these kids. They, they, it's a way that eighth graders will not eat you alive. Is is be self deprecating and completely honest and open with them before they can tear you down. Um, I tell them like I am very like comma usage. I overuse commas, but I use them correctly. And almost instinctively, it's like a lot of you are going to be instinctive spellers. You're going to be instinctive uh, grammar users. Um, I'm going to teach you the rules because some high school teacher is going to put them on a test for you and make you learn them rote, you know. But like most of us, I believe a lot of us are, and I certainly am. I'm an instinctive reader. I'm an instinctive writer. I'm an instinctive comma user. And what that means is when you find – like when I was writing parallel – Yes, I was hyper aware and conscious of balancing a lot, balancing the narrative storyline, balancing the dialogue, uh, looking at the pacing and and, and the reveals and and, and the logistical structure of the whole thing and, and making sure the underlying themes were there. But the fact that those themes poured into the work. Came instinctively from my experiences and my feelings. It's it's almost it's almost like an osmosis thing. So to come around and answer your question, all these experiences are going to bleed through to my work. Yeah, not necessarily because starting tomorrow I'm going to sit down and start writing the cancer story like Harvey Picar. Mm-hmm. Um, but because there's a line that will will pop up in a future work or in Jane American when the nurse came into my room at 3 a.m. and woke me up because she didn't think anybody was in the room and was like, oh, I didn't know anybody was in here. I was going to make a call and like very upset that I was in there and ruining her private call on, on, on company hours. And like funny thing, like that kind of stuff, you know, in, in the same way that like, like if you ever, if you ever sat down and got like really nerdy and did like a, like a parallel breakdown line by line, I go, oh, that line right there. That's because I listened to that uh, Lewis Black comedy CD 15 years ago, 45 sure, times. Right. And it just says that line is always stuck with me. So I put it in Landon's mouth, you know, not because I made a conscious effort 15 years ago to, 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 to put it in a narrative, but because it's swirling around in my head mm-hmm. and when the story calls for, it, it's going to come out. And whether that is a line from a film or a, you know, a, a veiled, you know, illusion, a reference to something or just an emotional underswell, you know, there's, 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 you know, Jane American has got so many family names and so much family history in it, even if, even though if it's, you know, slightly off and slightly changed and like watching my grandfather, who's going to be 99 next month. Wow. 
And, you know, the story is named after his late wife, who they've been childhood sweethearts since they were 14. Wow. And, and they got married at 19 before he went to Europe, you know, to now that he's 99 for him to win World War II. Back then it was just to participate and fight. But, um, and watching him age and watching him decline, he's like one of those dudes who was, um, at 90, you would have gone 78, maybe, right. you know? And, but, but like 97, 98, 99, it's, it, it's showing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and like watching him be excited about all this, his family history, at least being named or alluded to in this story, like just that emotional impact of him uh, being interested in, in it, in it and, and recalling certain aspects of that time in his life, you know, 1946, just post-war, um, has seeped into the emotional writing of the book. Mm-hmm. It's not even a direct reference, but like, like I, I, I th- th- there's, there's a scene that I wrote a couple weeks ago that has more urgency to it than I think was it originally intended. It's a pretty intense scene verbally, but, but there's more urgency to it. And I, and I realized that like, Oh, this is just because like I talked to my grandfather the other day. Right. And, and like, I felt his, his whatever behind it going. Yeah. And so, so anything that I've gone through over the last three months, whether, like I said, it's a direct illusion or not, it's, it's going to be definitely in my work and is pushing me creatively directly and indirectly. So, yeah, you say so you're, feel, you're, so you're, you're feeling, you're feeling the change within yourself coming out on the, on the page. Yeah. Always. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, a, it's a, it's a pretty magical thing when you can allow that to kind of break in there because I'm sure you felt before the diagnosis that you already had your story locked down. You're like, mm-hmm. I've got the whole arc. I've got this all figured out, but now you, there, there's no way to not be compelled to. I was, I was on, I was on a, I was on a pod last week and they were there. It was, they really wanted to talk about process kind of going into how, um, you know, I, I haven't really written anything where, whether it's the plays that I used to write for, for the kids and, um, or the sketches or, or the comics, I don't, I don't really think I've ever written anything where if I had a big, bolder, uh, story beat somewhere in the middle of the story or even an ending, um, I don't think I've ever written anything where I completely changed direction. Yeah. And didn't didn't get to that boulder halfway through uh, or to that ending. And yet I don't I don't, you know, do like a, a rough draft where all the every single line of dialogue is there and, and they can't be changed. It's it's literally story beats from beginning to end, but it leaves you so much freedom, no matter how long it takes to write. You know, even if it's a multi-year process, there's a massive amount of fluid changing through there. I mean, like like the second half of parallel the writing of that was drastically different for a lot of reasons in the first half, because that's when I met Adam and that's when I started to see Adam Ferris's work. And it was suddenly I was writing for him in the second half. And even though that scene with Landon at the top of the stairs and that last panel and the ambiguity of it, that was there from day one in my head. Right. right. 
it still is a very different written scene because I wrote it with him in mind. Yeah. And that's a post idea kind of thing. And like when I'm going to be writing the last 80 some pages of, of Jane American that I've got left, you know, the, the one shot that we're going to kickstart in May is locked down. But like, I know all the things we're going to get to. I know this big scene and I know that big scene. And I know this interaction is going to happen about here. Like everything that I've been through and every, every kid that comes through my classroom and goes through a self identity crisis mm-hmm. because their parents say this or the school says this or society says that is going to completely and utterly influence how I write that scene that I planned a year and a half ago, but I'm not going to write until six months from now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of it's a it's a wonderful thing that we're when you sit down and write, you could approach the same scene, you know, at all these different times, and you're going to come out with a different scene. The events may be the same. Yeah, you may begin in the same spot and end in the same spot, but what happens and how you get to that solution in each scene is different. So, so this is this is this is why. This is why talking to you is, is, is my, is my favorite thing to do in the, in the promotional process because I, like it, it, in the, in the length of a conversation with you, I, I'm going to say that I probably average three or four big ideas that I, that have never come together in my brain, but are very true and are like universal for me. And what I just realized is I write the exact same way that I teach. There is this massive amount of structural planning set in stone, mm-hmm. right? Like, like me and my partner and I, we have every day, every lesson planned on September 1st through June 17th, right? And no other teacher in our building does that. We've got it locked down. Yet within that unbreakable structure, it's like improv. Like every 40, 48 minute lesson is like, like this joke will go here for this hour. This joke will go here for that sec, that hour. I will jump on the table for this group. I will pause for this group because that kid needs to understand it differently. And it's just like fluid, uh, you know, flowing literally improv. And I think I write the exact same way um, where it, it's like, this is set in stone. This is going to be, this is the immovable object. And yet in the process along the way, it's, anything and everything and all the influences come in. Yeah. Well, it it also sounds like jazz to me. Yeah. Because there's a melody and we know what that melody is, that structure is. But once somebody's, you know, once somebody steps forward with their sax or whatever the instrument is, they will work all around stuff, but you're still going to get back and back into the tempo. You're going to get back into the melody and everyone's going to keep going. Uh Yeah. I got to tell you, this is, I, I mean, this is, this is the, you, you run the best show. Um, This is like, this is the, this is the best conversations that I have uh, uh, about stuff because it is, uh, we don't, you know, people should know that like, we're not sitting here preparing this and as, and as smart as we may sound occasionally throughout the last hour and a half, there is no preparation for this. This is just us talking and going to the places that we need to go. And, and um, I find, I find it fascinating. I find it therapeutic uh, and, and, uh, and I appreciate you to no end. 
Yeah. Well, Jason, I, I, this is my, this is my weekly therapy sessions. Yeah. I get, I get to really kind of dive in and there is no plan. The plan is to have a good conversation regardless of whatever the the subject is and the person, whoever the person may be. Um, and, if, and if anybody, if anybody is looking at the timestamp right now and like rolling their eyes, about listening this long. Let me tell you, there were about a dozen spots in this conversation where had the two of us had a little bit less self-control, we could have gone for another five hours about about New Hollywood or any other number of things. So so consider yourself uh, lucky that we're hanging out an hour and a half (laughs) and an hour six. (laughs) (laughs) So when, when, uh, I'm, it's going to be in the in the description below, but the yeah. uh, parallel. Yeah, way. you can you so so the special edition. I'm super excited about because it's got 50 bonus pages, uh, all curated by me. We've got uh, a, a new afterword that I wrote that kind of walks you through the whole journey. Um, there is uh, a, a wicked cover gallery collecting like all the cool variants that came out over that first run. Um, there's annotated script pages, kind of getting inside the process. Yeah. Uh, very conversational too, not very dry. I mean, it's literally like. Um, no, oh, this scene right here. Uh, my wife went into a store. We were on a date at a street fair. She turned her back and I sat down on a curb while people were playing bago in the middle of the street, whipping beanbags past my head and wrote this scene right here. Um, there's annotated, uh, um, concept art and, um, uh, rough pencils. And then my favorite is the, the brand new 10, uh, 10 page bonus story exclusive to this, to this edition that kind of dives back into that world and plugs in some holes in between scenes. And yeah, it's, um, it is in pre views right now uh you can order it through source point press uh the web uh, uh source point press website um you can order it through your lcs either directly through diamond there's a link in my bio on, on instagram you're going to put up some of the links mm-hmm. uh, at j douglas rice writes come and follow me on instagram and i'll talk your ear off about anything you want to know and um yeah go support indie comics and go support indie creators uh, yeah we've got the leeway to tell some pretty cool stories and, and hopefully you think parallel is one of them yeah that's cool and then Jane American is in May on Kickstarter. Jane American will be my first Kickstarter. I'm back to being terrified and back to square one of not knowing how how to produce a comic uh, in this <laughs> in this wonderful wild 21st century. And I'm gonna I'm gonna need all the support and bandwidth I can to to get, make that a reality too. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a it's a terrifying nightmare of going through the Kickstarter, but uh-huh. I guess it must be done. It must be done. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Um, yeah, all the info will be in the description. Cool. And, uh, yeah, Jason, I, thanks for taking the time. It's always great talking with you. I, I'm telling you, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling right for, for as verbose as I've been for the last hour and a half, uh, making it clear to, to, uh, the people who tune into you and to you specifically on how much I appreciate you and what you do is, is I'm struggling to find the words, but I need you to know that this was an honor and a pleasure. And thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, man. Thank you. Um, we'll go have a great meal. Um, happy birthday and all Thanks. that kind of stuff.